Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Census, Counting Folks and Counting Votes edition. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington and host of this podcast. I am joined for today's episode by my colleague, Sarah Curran. Sarah is a professor at the Jackson School of International Studies and director of the Center for Studies in Demography and Ecology at the University of Washington. A sociologist by training, Sarah researches and teaches on all manner of political, social, economic, and environmental challenges that threaten human populations around the world. I wanted to have Sarah on today's episode to discuss a specific area of her expertise within demography that relates directly and indirectly to elections and democracy, that is, the census. To have elections, you have to know how many voters you have, and to know how many voters you have, you have to know how many citizens and other people reside in your country. And moreover, governments require information about where people live and how many people live there to distribute resources and funding. But as straightforward as all of this sounds, censuses have become deeply politicized issues, not only in the US, but around the world. So I'm excited to discuss the census today with Sarah Curran. Hi, Sarah. Hi, James, nice to see you. Nice to hear you, voice. So Sarah, the census, I hear this word all the time in the countries that I work in, in Africa and Asia, but it's also now been all over the news in the United States within the last couple of years, particularly in the last year, uh, including this week with the Supreme Court case regarding the status of whether to include immigrants in the census count. But before we get into all that, let me start by asking you, what actually is a census and why are they important? Yeah, the census has become very much of a modern, uh, modern democracy enterprise. Um, it's it's even uh, there's a whole set of offices in the United Nations that are about uh, you know encouraging and um, uh, bureaucratizing and professionalizing data collection and censuses. So um, it was uh, a census is about collecting um, uh, information about the generally the most basic information about your population, age, the ages of that population, the genders, sometimes more controversially, the races and ethnicities, and, um, and sometimes uh, more, even more detail like education or educational attainment, or um, maybe even some health characteristics in some cases. But for the most part, it's very much of a nation state enterprise to demarcate who's inside your borders, who are you responsible for, and who, um, who do you have obligations for, and who is obligated to the state for any number of um, purposes. And, uh, it, but you might think of it as um, that in contemporary terms. Um, Originally, you know, the United States is uh, the United States Census was codified in the in the Constitution, uh, in the in the uh, second paragraph of the Constitution, <clears throat> and it was um, uh, they called it an enumeration of the population, and it was meant to it was going to be the way in which um, the House of Rep number of representatives was chosen how to find the right number of representatives to be in the um, lower house, house of representatives um, and how to allocate that across states. Um, and that's now done by a full count of every single person residing in the United States on April 1st. 
So how do we know the framers weren't just data nerds that want to like, we're really interested in thinking about like sophisticated methods of sampling and, you know, <laughs> lots of different survey questions and, um, you know, how, what other ways in which the, the census data kind of determines other rules or policies that at least in the US, the government uses that information to pursue? Yeah, so, um... I guess you could say it was an enlight initially, you know, a Jeffersonian enlightenment project that we needed to, in order to govern, we needed to know who was going to be governed and in order to govern seemingly fairly and allocate and make sure we knew who to tax and where taxes would be collected from and where to allocate the subsequent resources that are collected back to those citizens. Um, it was, that's might've been how we thought about it. Um, yes, they could be just data nerds, but they were not talking about statistical sampling at the time. Um, and they were talking about actually head counting every single person in the United States. Was the thinking at the time more about um, a fiscal relationship and kind of a poll tax or a head tax based on uh, families and people who owned property and were more likely to pay taxes and therefore be sort of quote unquote and at that time seen as more citizen oriented versus I mean obviously slaves weren't but but people who were not as fiscally connected to the state people who maybe didn't own property or who lived in urban centers where they you know they didn't own land or maybe they were just um, they were either indigent or they were um, you know kind of doing day labor stuff like that is it did that go into it early on well, there was a debate in the when when the enumeration was put into the Constitution. The question was, what are we going to count? What is what is going to be counted? Is it is it uh, property owners? Is it um, people bodies? Um, and uh, and and uh, the there was a fair amount of debate about the challenges, or was it going to be income? Uh, some some you know are some people going to be counted? If they're, if more, or some people counted in the, this enumeration as more valuable and relevant vis-a-vis -vis, um, governance, and in the end, it it was so. And I don't. There, there's very little uh, about that. The nature of that particular debate. It came down to this: it's simpler just to count people <laughs> yeah. than to figure out, um, you know, property and and the like. And count five fifths of five, five out of five, yeah. or three out of five, depending on who you are. Okay, exactly. so that that was the complicated math that they had to do as potential yeah. data nerds at that time. Okay, so one one thing that's interesting, Sarah, is that um, you know every ten years in the United States, but this is true in every country. You know when there's a, a push to do the census for citizens to participate at some level, whether it's a an enumerator coming to your door or you get the mailer and then you go online, and people seem you know, voters are really excited to vote, but it always seems like people kind of are like, oh, census, like it feels more <laughs> like homework. Like people aren't as invested in doing that. Um, even though plausibly, you know, you counting as a person in a census probably has more impact, you know, on policy and legislation than a single vote does on the outcome of an election. So do people get excited about this? Is it a chore? Um, what, what do we know about people's kind of uh, interest in participating in it? Well, um, 
the rule is we have to count everybody. So um, participant rate, participation rates have varied. And so there's a tremendous amount of dedicated effort in uh, by the census and by community members and um, an engagement with state and local officials, nonprofit organizations, community associations, you name it. There are businesses, lots of organizations care deeply about getting a good count precisely for the reasons that you say, because so many resources are allocated um, as a are determined by the at that count. Um, so in the case of Washington State, where we are in 2016, um, $16 billion was allocated back to Washington for federal programs. Um, and that's all based on calculations of how many people we have in our state, how many federal highway dollars we're gonna get, how much Medicare, Medicaid, supplemental uh, programs, all the entitlement programs are really the key to these numbers. Um, and uh, that, I, the most of the, the institutional layers that, you know, between the person and the government and the federal government, all of those institutional layers are really engaged in getting people to fill out the census form. And the idea has been to try to make it e easier every decade. Um, there, you know, I think on the margins, there are people who are concerned about giving their data to the government, um, you know, and worried about the privacy or the, the risks that are posed by sharing their data. Uh, but even in this day and age where people are sharing their data in other, many other ways, um, I think even that risk is, although initially somewhat of a problem, uh, wasn't really particularly expressed. This year, the challenge for us in the census was that the census went to a different data collection uh, platform. They, they used an online data collection web-based platform along with a telephone-based platform. This is very different than we've done in the past. Mostly it's been, um, you know, the last decade it was a paper-based form um, mailed to your house that you completed. Uh, and that's, that's a very different system. Not everybody has internet connectivity. And um, so, so there's quite a bit of variability in the response rates this year. Uh, which is which is posing some issues. I think probably December fifteenth there will be a rollout of a, the a preliminary count, and um, but the Census Bureau is already saying that they are having trouble reconciling, doing the getting a decent data reconciliation to say that they've got a decent count, and there may be some problems with the with the way we collected the data this year, this particular decade. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. So, so you're you're suggesting that at least in the United States in 2020, part of the inability to collect good data or the best data could have to do with the sort of rollout and the data collection method. But I, I'm curious to know the degree to which the census has been politicized too, and whether yeah. or not that that would cause some non-response. Um, you know, I think of so Kenya also does their census every 10 years, and I, I wasn't there in 2019, but they did it in 2009. And it's like a big deal. Like it's like a national exercise. Political leaders come out and say, when the, you know, the guy knocks on the door, answer the questions. It's, it's important for our country. Don't be suspicious. And everybody's, it's like this big celebration almost. And in the United States, I feel like recently it's, it's like become distasteful. And so how much of the non-response would you attribute to kind of the, the degree to which it's been politicized versus maybe the data collection methods? 
Yeah, that's a good, good question. I think um, it really got muddied in this particular decade. I, I don't think that, I think in 2010, um, it was a little bit less. It does feel very much like a nationalistic, national exercise of, um, of coming together. And, uh, and this year was much more muddied in the United States. Um, and I would agree with you that though compared to other places, so I've been to Brazil and Thailand when they've done their, their censuses and there are billboards everywhere and there's everything everywhere you're seeing ideas about do your part and, and be part of the Nash, this national effort. That's certainly less, less, there's less of that, um, uh, I don't know what to say, esprit <laughs> about yeah. nationalism in the United States than, than other places. Um, but this deck, this particular census that was completely muddied by the whole lead up with the citizenship question in 20, during 2017, 18 and 19, um, and that the, until the Supreme Court decision in 20, fall 2019, when they said no, that there won't be a citizenship question. But um, that really caused a lot of um, damage. Most of this state um, efforts to organize nonprofits and community, community organizations were particularly upset about this because they realized that so many dollars that are vital for their communities, especially vulnerable communities, um, are tied to the, an accurate count. Um, and they don't want to, didn't want to dampen or suppress any number of people participating in the census. Um, so they were working very hard under, um, you know, uh, on the ground through grassroots efforts. You mentioned the state of Washington and Washington to me sounds like a great example of where Washingtonians would really want a census every 10 years because there's so much population inflow in a state like mm -hmm. Washington. I mean, if you live in a rural area in the United States, maybe you think every 10 years, not a lot changes. And I mean, in Kenya, they're seeing really drastic changes in 10 year intervals, not just in terms of the overall number of people they're counting, but the relative shift of, you know, people moving to urban areas or different ethnicities moving to different regions in ways that I think would be pretty surprising for most people to know that a lot can change in 10 years. Yeah, we're, I mean, Washington might get another, you know, might, might be one of those states that gets another representative as a as a result of um, the growth between 2010 and 2020. It's uh, sort of on the cusp. Uh, who would they steal it? Who would they steal it from? <laughs> well, there's California? no stealing. <laughs> um, I I probably one of the you know decimated states like from the Midwest. You know, some <laughs> of those states that are losing <laughs> losing people. Um, and then, then that's kind of a morbid comment, but um, uh, which probably wasn't, <laughs> I'm talking about COVID, but I think that um, we won't go there. <laughs> we can, we, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, some of the Midwest, upper Midwestern states have lost a fair amount of population. And is so California losing people, I mean, net losing people at this no, point? No, California is. California is on on track to maybe gain three. The the um, the um, Texas is on track to gain two, I think. Um, so the the issue though with this decision on the the, the 
debate on the on Monday in the court in the Supreme Court was if if undocumented folks are excluded from the count, then those states, California and Texas, are going to not gain as many seats as they as they would have. Do you have a sense of how that case might go just based on oral arguments or the coverage of it? What I what I heard was that it was this administration's presentation of both the uh, administrative capacity to do what they want, what they say they want to do, um, was was met with a great deal of skepticism. Meaning, by the, the justices were very skeptical of the ability to actually do what they want to do, vis-a-vis -vis excluding, finding an accurate count, and excluding those folks. So I think it'll be ruled on relatively narrow grounds, not on the principle of whether not on the principle of the full enumeration of every resident, which is the way it's written in the constitution. Right, and it doesn't actually specify citizen, right? Is it, no, no, no. Correct, yeah. That's right. Okay, so, so then the, you're saying the likely outcome would be that um, even undocumented people would, who, who are counted in the census, that would then go into the determination of things like congressional seats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every, every person who lives in the United States is counted. And that, that goes into the apportionment decision. So one of the ways that this gets really politicized and important for elections is then when the census occurs and then if district lines have to be redrawn or seats added or taken away or things like that, can you talk a little bit about the way that the census then transposes into electoral politics in the United States? Okay. So usually what usually happens and which is scheduled to happen this time is that a full count of the US population by state will be delivered to the president by December 31st. And then the president, uh, and that then will be used, the census will advise the president on the apportion, the total count of, rep of people, representatives um, that would be allocated for each state at that point. Um, the president then delivers that to the, Congre to the Congress uh, about a week after the first session opens after the new year. And that then is decided, at, you know, affirmed or not by the, by the Senate and the House, by Congress. What has happened like in 1920, there was a great deal of dispute around that count <clears throat> in 1920, uh, following all of the immigrants that arrived in urban areas in the US. And um, that all many rural legislators at that time decide, put up a fight and said they didn't want to accept the apportionment count and they wanted to keep the count the way it was based oh. on the 19th. That's why the immigration exclusion legislation comes after. Oh, so we, yeah. oh, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so it was the 1920 so, census, right? Yeah, because it was later in the yeah. 20s. That the yeah, okay. Right. So then in 19, so the decision was we are going to keep it the way it was from 1910 to 1920, and we're just going to carry on till the 1930 census, um, and do an apportionment after the 1930 census. Oh wow. Yeah. So we could be in that, there could be a moment in which that happens. I think I, 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 you know, 
depends. I, I don't know what will happen in Georgia, but it could it could be. Well, so is this, but is this, this is going to be the new Congress that is sworn in So yeah. from January 5th. And then is it going to be the, the new president who then it matters? I know Trump is the one who delivers this, um, who gets to count, who gets the apportionment, who makes the recommendation to Congress. So Trump is going to get the, the apportionment count on December 31st from the census. He's going to deliver it a week after the session opens and the new new Congress is sworn in. And then, um, yeah, and then there'll be this period of time between then and then, the, you know, January 20, when we have a new president. So, uh, so that, that's the first step. I'll just mention that the yeah, next step ahead. is that April 1st, um, typically April 1st, Cong uh, the census then delivers to each state, the distribution of people within the state so at that point, the state legislatures receive the, 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 you know, the spatial distribution of everybody. And that, at that point, state, states decide how they're gonna redraw districting lines based on what the census delivers on April 1st. Um, that's the typical, the typical process. And, and then, you know, every state does it differently. Sometimes it's an independent commission. Sometimes it's based in the state legislature, um, you know, and everything in between. And it's kind of messy in the US because it's 50 different states coming up with 50 different ways that they do this rather than there being sort of the, you know, for right. instance, in Kenya, there's a there's a, a national, uh, basically like a secretary of bureau that it draws the boundaries and uses this data and then the, they do it for the whole country. It's not done at a regional or provincial level. So the right. United States is, is kind of unique in that way, right? Very. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's another legacy of what the framers were thinking <laughs> or not thinking about. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you um, uh, about a couple cases where censuses have been really, really politicized. So I remember, you know, you and I, you, you've done a lot of work with your colleagues at the Jackson School in Myanmar. And I remember a couple years ago, us having some conversations and you talking about how truly controversial it is to count people in Myanmar um, Ethiopia had a very contentious census in 2017. Lebanon, which has been a place that there's been a lot of conflict, obviously for decades and decades, hasn't even had a census because they think, you know, it'd be so controversial to have it. So can you talk about other cases where it's so politicized, you know, kind of why it gets to that level in other places? And, and I mean, is it maybe a good thing in other places not to really count people and make that data available if it would potentially lead to conflict or disturbances? Um, well, the, the main, the really the biggest issue is around race and ethnicity in most countries. Um, um, you know, how do we, do we, first of all, do we just do a count of people, age and sex and leave it at that? Or um, do we collect even more data? And what is the purpose of collecting even more data? Um, and that has been debated here in the United States as well. We've had changes in how we measure race and ethnicity. It's a huge, been a huge issue. Um, and, and there are people on both sides, uh, you know, some people who worry about that kind of surveillance around race and ethnicity and what that means in terms of inclusion and exclusion vis-a-vis -vis government, um, government efforts and, and um, whether, but on um, other cases where 
people want to be seen and want to be represented and want to be observed so that they can actually have a voice. So I, and you, W.D. Du Bois was very much of a, one of those people in, in um, African-American history who argued forcefully for representation of African-Americans on the census. Um, so in, um, just to go back uh, in Southeast Asia where I spent a fair amount of time, the issue of race and ethnicity and measurement of race and ethnicity is, is very controversial. Um, and in fact, like in, in Malaysia, the Malaysian government will sometimes suppress the count of the Chinese Malay because they are afraid of being, showing them as being too powerful in the country. Um, and, and the implications of that for the, the politics of Malaysia. Similarly in Myanmar, when um, they were doing their census and I think it was before the election, so like maybe 2012 or so, they um, were trying to decide whether or not to uh, whether or not to allocate people uh, around 98 different race and ethnic categories, and um, this this list of ethnicities became very very controversial. And in fact, the Rohingya were not counted in that as um, they were not really allowed to be counted because they were not seen as members of the Burmese Myanmar state. So. Um, and, and the consequence was then substantial for their, for their people. Um, so I, it's, a, it's and, and there was a lot of debate about, about whether or not to count all those people. The United Nations was very strongly UNFPA office that typically helps to advise countries around the, their data collection, their census data collections was, um, you know, it tends to encourage the data collection around race and ethnicity. Well, let me ask you your thoughts on like the Kenyan approach, which is what they do is they do ask a race, a race ethnicity question. You know, there's sort of 42 tribes for the most part that people would fit into. There's a couple of racial classifications that people might pick. Like if they're um, a white Kenyan, the descendant of, 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 of British landowners, or if they were uh, South Asian immigrants or something like that. But what the government does is the government no longer releases the ethnic data at a local or subnational level. They'll 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 release the ethnic breakdown at the national level, but they will never release it at say the provincial or anything that looks like a local political boundary or administrative boundary. I think the last time they did was 1989, but the last three censuses they haven't done that, and they keep mm -hmm. that under lock and key. Um, that that can kind of do two things. One is it, it you can say maybe it tamps down the potential for conflict at the local level, but it also makes people very suspicious about then the government sort of having this as private information, right? I mean, then the government has the information. What are they going to do with it? So yeah. is that is that a good response, or is that is that you you say let a thousand flowers bloom and let the information out there, and that's a better in general that's a better policy to pursue. I just I don't. That's a it's a. Pandora's box. I, 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 that's interesting about Kenya. Um, I think that even in the United States, we have this issue where we are, uh, they're now implementing a whole new system in the census, which we haven't even gotten into, but it's called differential privacy, where they're at, um, actually going to be um, 
uh, fuzzing out, fuzzing, fuzzing the data out so that you might not, when you look at a particular tract or block, it may not actually be the true representation of race and age or race and education in that block because there may be so few people in that block that you might inadvertently reveal their identity right. if you had enough information about them. Right. And this is, this is the challenge. Um, if your preface of collecting, premise of collecting the data is to protect people from being identified individually in a particular place and protecting their privacy. Um, but at the same time, you need some information about places and people in order to get resources out to them. It's a very tricky space to operate in as a, as a democracy and certainly far more tricky in an authoritarian setting. Um, and uh, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, there's a quite a bit of controversy around this differential privacy and, and protection around inadvertent disclosure, um, even in the US. So that, that's gonna be the next issue following this decadal census here in the US. Well, no, but I love this, Sarah, because, you know, one of the things we've done on multiple episodes of the podcast is just on elect election integrity. It's like, you know, once you open the hood of the car, it's a <laughs> really old, messy engine that you have to sort of think about. And I think, you know, people just don't ever think about the, the very technical components to making even a democracy exist. You know, I, people probably don't know that the framers were thinking about the census or people probably don't know about all the ways that the census is both important, but also can easily go awry if misused or, um, or you know, not, not, the data is not being used to support the right kinds of things. And I think most people just don't have a sense of that. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. I don't, I think most people don't realize how many ways in which census data products are vital to running, getting, making the country actually work somewhat effectively. <laughs> yeah. um, no, absolutely, I agree. And it, but it is messy and it's, it's really hard. I think also just to let people know, you know, the apparatus of the census, the Census Bureau, um, they're collecting data on an annual basis on all sorts of fronts all the time. Uh, they're not doing full enumerations every year, but they are doing statistically driven samples um, to help inform you know, governments and, and uh, businesses uh, about the, you know, the, the nature of what's happening in the country in quite a fair, fair amount of detail. And it's a government agency. I mean, th this is a government right. activity. It's, is that true in most countries? It's the government that always does the census? Yeah, I, it's very much about this, uh, I, you know, the United Nations has pretty much made sure it's a multinational, multi, you know, multilateral effort to improve the professionalization of data collection as, as, as an endeavor of, um, of one of its major endeavors in the United Nations. Are people, are countries now all using tablets and smartphones and stuff like that? Or, I mean, are, are, is the door-to-door -door pencil and paper thing a, a bad way to do it? I know it's expensive and it's probably more time consuming, but it, it, it seems to have worked in the past. I don't, I don't know the answer to, to that question. I suspect that they are increasingly going there, but I don't know. I don't know how it's being, you know, how, how that's being rolled out across the world. 
um, I, su I suspect that it's becoming, especially there might be some leapfrogging around, um, around this. Yeah, I know Kenya, I, I think Kenya is doing it the right way where it's, it's on tablets, but it's still door-to-door enumerators. And so it doesn't mm -hmm. put the onus on the citizen to log on like it does in the United States, because obviously a lot of people don't have internet connectivity. So it still kind of maintains the door-to-door -door aspect, but there the data collection is obviously much faster and probably higher quality on a tablet. Yeah, yeah I think that's probably true. I mean, I, I'll just tell you uh, what I've been surprised about on our census is that for example, I mean, this isn't surprising, but Puerto Rico um, only had 35.8% self-response rate to the census. So 64% of Puerto Ricans were non-respondent to the census. Um, whereas in Minnesota, 75% of people in Minnesota responded online. You know who would not be surprised by that? People from Minnesota. <laughs> Have you ever talked to a Minnesotan about how proud they are at doing things like this? No, they are. There's like so much social capital in, in Minnesota. They love, they love when they're known for something like that, I think. They're very communitarian, I would say. Alaska so, is at 54.7 response. So. so is the response working in the U.S. right now? You get the mailer in the mail that says do it online. But then if they haven't recorded a response from you online, then somebody comes and knocks on your door and interviews you? Right. So what we what is unclear is how that worked this year. Um, Wilbur Ross, so the Department of Commerce is in charge of the census uh, because the Census Bureau is housed in the Department of Commerce. Uh, the Ross says that there was an imputation process where enumerators went through, went by, either they came and said, said something, or if nobody was there, they made some imputation around who lived in that house based on some sort of data, but we don't know yet how they did that. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The, the census worker, if somebody didn't respond to the door, might peek in the window or, or kind of walk around the you, house and then impute use, data? Use data, use data that they had from a previous census. They, it's not clear how they did their imputation <laughs> on on uh, like in West Virginia, 43.7% of people were non-respondent households. Sarah, if you and I tried to write an academic paper and get it published in a reputable journal where we said, as I mean, you and I both do house, you know, we do survey research, yeah. that that was how we determined responses to a survey, we would be laughed out of the room. Right. Now I'm, I'm probably, if I have, if you end up sending, this ends up being heard by a Census Bureau person, they'd be, uh, may, may get mad at me about it, but we well, don't. No, it's not their really fault. No, that. I mean, it's not their fault. This is what they're told to do, right? Well, we just don't know exactly. There's nothing that I have found on how they did their imputations. I don't know. And I don't, we don't know what they did to come up with their enumerated non-response follow-up. We well, don't know. How, I mean, so like last time in 2010, the the um, count was finished in June. Um, they did the door knocking June, July, and then they had four months to get to fig, you know, to to do all the sorting out. There's a 300-page document on how they did the non-response follow-up households, and you can you can see, you know, how many people was an actual door knocking, 
how many people they used some other kind of data, and we know exactly what they did. In this case, we don't know, in part because the count, the enumeration extended through to October 31st. So there hasn't been enough data processing and publication of what they did. And then it's not clear, I, it's not at all clear to me what portion of the non-response involved an actual door knock with somebody talking to somebody versus an imputation. Well, and to their credit, I mean, they're doing this during a pandemic. So I was going to ask you, like, how, how should we think about the census occurring in a pandemic where we still right. have door to door and we still have the need to see people face to face? I mean, Seattleites get suspicious if anybody knocks on their door anyway. It doesn't matter if there's a <laughs> pandemic or not. But I imagine in a lot of the country people open their door and somebody knocks. But during a pandemic, maybe not. Do you have a sense of how the pandemic has affected things or it's too soon to tell? Uh, well, I think this is what they're running. This is, there was a worrying um, message that came out of the census uh, last week about the reconciliation and that there are some issues with the state of reconciliation, um, which suggests to me that they're not gonna make the December 15th deadline when they're gonna do preliminary results. Um, I think that, that we, that they did try to do some um, they did try to do some door knocking. Um, they had tablets, they had people walking around with tablets and distancing, um, social distancing. Um, but they also were uh, dealing with uh, budget constraints from Congress on this. They had to spend more money on enumeration than they thought they on the door-to-door -door or the outreach, the non-respondent households than they thought they were gonna have to spend money on. Um, honestly, I don't know. So, do we know if these, these census? Do we know if these census workers were at least provisioned with, you know, face masks and and things like that at that level? Uh, PPE for them. Uh, I they were well, I not, don't not know. full on PPE, but like at least face masks, or they were given instructions on just the health part of it. Like, I mean, you mentioned social distancing, but were they actually given the resources and and masks to make it happen? Um, they, I don't know. I don't have the good question. I'm sure they were, um, but like every place else, I don't know how prioritized it was. Um, it was. They still have a lot of people on the book, employed on the books on the census in, across the country. Um, I think they're still trying to do some cleanup, even though. It, yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of how election work, I mean, how election administrators and election workers had to deal with COVID in a short period of time and being under-resourced, mm -hmm. you know, for places that still have um, in-person voting. You know, it's mm -hmm. like we're, we're, you know, these people are hired to do a job and they want to do a good job, but like, are they, given the resources and the time to actually do it per their mandate. And it seems to me like, you know, one of the, the negative things that could come out of the census is if they weren't, if somebody got sick, or if there were stories about it, then it would be negatively, people would view it negatively when they really shouldn't. And it was just a matter of the government not providing them enough resources to, to do their jobs well. Yeah, I think that the census is suffering from this issue the politicization of every aspect of the Trump administration and federal government and that um, two, two new positions were created right below the director of the Census Bureau um, about a year ago. And those led to three new appointees at the just below the director of the census who were political appointees 
from the Trump administration who were keen to make sure that we would both get this undocumented count and that we would also be able to deliver a count to the president by the end of this calendar year. And that politicization of the whole process has probably, you know, has this double-edged sword because you've got the problem of, uh, you want people to trust the data. You don't want to have like years and years of fights around the data. Uh, so it's a little bit awkward to start saying, wait a minute, we don't have enough resources. We're worried about getting an accurate count. And you've got major forces that are just trying to actually constantly undermine the data. I mean, there's, there, there's the, the forces that are out there to underfund it that's been going on for years and years. And then the rush to get something out, the, the, the doubt, the sowing of doubt around data, data evidence in general. And I, and I think that we haven't really heard that much from census, day-to-day -day census workers because raising, you know, putting, sticking your head up out of, out of the weeds to talk about it may actually be counterproductive. But Sarah, why, why do you think that is? I mean, it's not like conducting the census is some boondoggle to a tech company who developed proprietary software that the government is buying. I mean, this is in the constitution. They've been doing this since the 1700s. Like, why is this in this, you know, the, it, it's for the government, but the government's trying to undermine it. It's, it's supposed to help everybody, but certain people don't view it that way. How did this happen? Well, I think it has a lot to do with, um, well, it has a lot to do with how it's, it has, goes right back to how we do this apportionment and the redistricting and political power. And there's a, just how that the count matters for that distribution of power. And if you can sow doubt about the count and put it in, in any way, shape or form, that has, that has been an issue for years with the census. I mean, we've had, we've had um, fights in Congress for years about making, not funding it, not funding efforts to do data collection. Well, I guess the three-fifths compromise was the original fight, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, big picture, if you were to say, you know, these are the things in the future, if, if, if we were to transpose kind of a, a, a narrow technical, this is what the census is about to, this is why the census is important for democracy. Um, what do you think are kind of the, both the opportunities and challenges with that looking forward in the United States? Or, or perils or pitfalls, I would say. Like what, where, what, are, what are the things that have you worried then about how this data might be used or how this process might be used in the next 10 years. I mean, we have, and we have a new administration coming in as well. So maybe it's, it's, it's more about, you know, recovering some of the things that you are fixing some of the things that you're worried about. Yeah, I think that um, the com there's a combination of things that will actually play to the benefit, to the benefit of, you know, these state, nation state enterprises to have decent high quality expertise and evidence. Um, you know, I think the COVID pandemic and our new administration and the sort of drumbeat of science is gonna drive us. We're gonna make these decisions around scientific decisions. We need better data uh, around national health statistics. That's a completely different topic. We haven't talked about that, but that is similarly problem 
suffered, has suffered greatly as well. And I, so I think that the census um, and this real, the fact that to govern well, you have to have evidence about <laughs> I know you're, you're, I we, we're laughing, but it's I, because it's, it had, we have to remind the world that that's true, that that is still important. So I guess uh, to me, it's, we have, we have a new president. I completely agree. We have a new president that is going to be who went, who is, who does really believe in the use of evidence. I mean, he did back in the great recession when they were coming out of the recession, um, they took sort of an evidence-based approach um, at that time. And I think, you know, I'm hopeful that this is a teachable moment. Um, and I, you know, I, yeah, that maybe we can get some national, national consensus around it. Do you think the census will inform other types of policies that the Biden-Harris administration will pursue, like around COVID and public health or around, you know, economic or stimulus packages or things like that? Has that historically been true? Oh, yeah. I mean, the census, I'm going to get my little cheat sheet here, but the census, um, census-derived data sets are used to compute all kinds of eligibility criteria, um, to deal with um, federal loan projects, every everything that needs a denominator, you know, any kind of denominator. If you're going to figure out um, a rate or you know an allocation, needs the census, needs that count um, in your denominator. So that's that's its most important function. Um, every almost every allocation requires that information in order to make a decision, and. I, I, you know, I just can't imagine people not using it. I guess, is, is that what you were asking me? Yeah, I mean, it's funny too that you mentioned a denominator because I think one of the things that COVID has revealed to me is that our country doesn't know the difference between levels and rates. And you'll even <laughs> notice, because you, you know, you'll notice that the president is constantly talking about levels, like we've done the most testing, but he never had, he never wants to have a denominator because if you have more people, then you would have more testing. So if you're not dividing by any kind of reasonable denominator, then comparing levels between a country that has 330 million people and a country that has a million people doesn't make any sense, right? And so I, it's funny that you mentioned that denominator because I think people have kind of forgotten the importance of that. And the COVID has revealed to me the importance of reminding people that you have to divide by something to know uh, the rate at which you're doing something well or not well. Exactly. I mean, even, I mean, people are, I think, I, absolutely. And I, I, I just think this has a, been a, an incredible teachable moment. Um, the, the, um, even the question of people talk about, uh, you know, particular communities being um, more, carrying more of a burden of the COVID, COVID impact. When you do adjust your rates by the number of people that are by race or by age, you actually end up having Latinx communities and black community. You can see that in fact, they are far more impacted than any other population, even though there are far more cases among um, older white people, so. Well, and also, I mean, there a lot of that is gonna be some invisible denominator. I mean, there, there are gonna be people that we, first of all, that were never counted in the numerator perhaps as, as actual cases. 
but then are just sort of never really counted at the end of the day into what the denominator should be because either they haven't been counted, they haven't received medical care, or they're somehow just not making in making it into the statistics that the government is, is gathering. Right, yeah. I mean, I would say that the 2010, I mean, most of the, um, you know, between 2010 and 2020, we have something called the American Community Survey, which is a statistically uh, state states representative sample that's done every year. And if you look, use those data uh, in intercensal years between decades, um, we have a pretty good sense of the denominator uh, up to 2019 for most places uh, now. So in terms of, because we, we can, we have a number of techniques in demography to figure out uh, appropriate forecasting techniques. So, and plus with this American community survey, we have a good sense of where everybody is. So we do have the denominator, but the main issue is the, the numerator. Like how do we count those cases um, and those deaths, uh, which may be quite hidden. Given given the mess, given the way in which the healthcare system is organized. Well, Sarah Curran, I feel like you and I could talk about all manner of narrow and big picture stuff <laughs> uh, uh, all all evening. Do you have any closing thoughts on the census and democracy? I'm I'm a total nerd and I'm a total idealist, and I believe in count. I believe that the census can be a force for good. <laughs> and good governance. So I guess I would go back to the original ideals of the framers, even though they may have had their faults and their priorities. Um, I believe it can help and can work. <laughs> and so when we get those cards in the mail or those knocks on the doors now or in the future, everyone should fill that out and be a part of that national exercise. It's important. Absolutely, absolutely. It's for All your right. own good. <laughs> Sarah Curran, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, James. I appreciate the invitation. It was a fun combo. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.